Our sermon text this evening is, comes from the Gospel according to John, chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. John 13, 1 through 17, then I'd like us to read a few verses from Philippians chapter 2, namely verses 3 through 8. John chapter 13, beginning at, at verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one, another, one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And now turning to Philippians chapter 2. Begin reading in verse 3. Philippians chapter 2, reading verses 3 through 8. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Well, this, this passage is uh, surely known to, to all of us. We've, we've read this several times, I'm, I'm sure, in our, in, our, in our Bibles. And it's important to perhaps point out something that uh, you may have missed or forgotten. Maybe it's been some time since you looked at the Gospel of John. But uh, this passage comes at the most important point in terms of a, a hinging point in the Gospel. There's a transition 
that's being made by the author. Uh, this comes out in, in the previous chapter, chapter 12, verse 27, where our Lord expresses the fact that he understands the moment and he is overwhelmed with dread at this hour that has come upon him. And yet he understands that he's not to shirk this moment. This is the very reason why he came. We see something similar in these opening verses uh, that give us insight into the fact that our Lord has this great uh, self-consciousness of not just the moment, but, but who he is and what he is to do. And it's important for us to appreciate that as we open uh, this passage, because there are two points that are made. The one is obvious, the one is not so obvious. And it's the second one that I want us to spend most of our time on uh, this evening. The first point is serving like Jesus. That's the first point, the obvious point of this passage, serving like Jesus. But the second point is being served by Jesus, being served by Jesus, as we'll see in a little bit. Now, as I suggested, these opening verses really frame the passage. And in fact, what's, what's interesting, it's not obvious to us in our English Bibles, the way it's broken up, is that the verb that completes that first sentence in verse 1 comes in verse 4. The simple sentence in its, in its most basic structure is Jesus, verse 4, rose from supper. That's what you're supposed to see. But verses 1 through 3 are telling you information that you'll have insight and understand how it is that he rose from supper, what was in his mind, uh, what is it that that frames this, this whole thing, that as Jesus rose to get up to do what he's going to do in this passage, that there's a certain understanding that he has. He understands the hour that it's arrived. He understands the meaning of what's going to come upon him in the coming week. He knows who he is, the text tells us. We know He knows where he's from, obviously. He knows what he has to do. He knows what is at stake. We're told in verse 2, he knows whom he loves, and he's about to show them how much he loves them. Not just here, but later on in the gospel, of course. He knows in verse 3 who's going to betray him. And so as he, he rose from the supper, we're supposed to, to keep these things in mind. These are the things that, that frame what's going to, to take place. Because what's happening is actually an illustration of what we read in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. B.B. Warfield calls this a living parable. That Christ is about to act out what Philippians 2 says, that he was the form of God, humbled himself by taking the form of a servant. He really does that in this passage. He does it in this very graphic way. He takes up the clothing of a servant. Our passage tells us that he rose up from his place, takes out his, his outer garments, the garments of a teacher, of, of a rabbi, and he takes a towel and he wraps it around his waist. There's no mistaking the optics He's taking on this costume, as it were, this appearance of a servant. But it's more than taking on the clothing of a servant. He takes up the task of a servant. We're told here that he takes water and he pours it into a basin. And then one by one, he begins to wash the feet of his disciples. And with a towel wrapped around his waist, he dries each and every one of their feet. And because of what's in his mind, because of what we're told this moment means, that this task, this very simple task of a servant, has special significance. We're kind of waiting for what's going on. And the Lord leads us into the first of those points in verses 12 to 17. He gets done, he, he goes back to his place, and he says, do you understand what I've just done? Do you understand what I've done to you? And notice how he begins. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, but technically... If we want to be really literal, it's you call me the teacher, you call me the Lord, and that's right. You're right to call me that. 
And so what he's saying, there's no denying who Jesus is. He is who he has always claimed to be. This is the Lord. This is, this is God that his disciples are beginning to sense who he is. There's no denying who Jesus is, but there's also no denying what Jesus just did. The disciples saw it. They experienced it. He washed their, their feet, which only intensifies the point. They saw the teacher remove his, his garments, the garments of a teacher, and put on the dress of a slave. But more than that, their Lord was kneeling before them, washing their feet like a slave. So Jesus is saying, if it's true, I am who I am, and I did what I did, then how much more should you do the same? How much more should you serve one another? How much more should you wash each other's feet? A servant is not greater than his master. The messenger is not greater than the one who sends him. You're not more important than I am. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but but to serve. And so he's telling us that the lesson of this, these verses lies right there on the surface where you can see it. It's perfectly obvious, and he's making it clear in his instruction that serving is what marks the disciples of Jesus. That serving one another in the way that Christ serves is something that all the followers of Jesus will do. Now, this is interesting because this is not too far after when the sons of Zebedee um, were expecting Jesus to name all of his lieutenants. In his kingdom, they're on their way to Jerusalem, and they're asking, who's going to sit at his right, who's going to sit at his left? Obviously, it's going to be you and me. And then Jesus does this, and it just shatters every notion of self-importance. Any sense of, of I should be esteemed over my brothers, he's, he's showing what his, his followers are like. He's showing what a Christian is. If you're a member of this church, you took a vow and a portion of that one vow said you promised to participate in the, the service of this church. Will you serve your brothers and sisters in Christ? It's a question all of us can be asked. Are we here? Or is the church here to serve us? Or are we here to serve the church? There's a lot of people that love to be served. But it's important to learn how to serve. There's a seminary in Australia. And they were facing some very difficult financial times. And they made the difficult decision they had to let go of all of their staff, all their maintenance staff, anybody working on physical plant and cleaning, those sorts of things. And they put these lists up on a wall and asked all the, the students to sign up for these jobs. And, of course, since mostly male students, the first jobs that went was mowing the grass, anything involved maintenance, working with your hands. Cleaning the bathrooms remained empty. Nobody signed up for that. And weeks went by, and nobody signed up for it. But the bathrooms were being cleaned. It became a mystery. Who's cleaning the bathrooms? And one of the students, for some reason, went into one of the bathrooms way too early in the morning and discovered the culprit. It was the president of the seminary. He understood. It's remembering who we are, that all of us are servants of Christ. And we're called to serve like Christ, And God sees us and he blesses it. He says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. If we humble ourselves and serve like Jesus. That's the first point. It's the obvious point that these passages, uh, these verses are making for us. Let's not mistake that that's the main point. But there is something unusual in what John does in the way that he records this. That he sort of slows down. In verses 6 through 8, and he draws us all in to focus on this exchange that takes place between our Lord 
and Peter. Peter, verse 6, is kind of bewildered by Jesus. He sees what's going on, and he says, Lord, are you about to do what I think you're going to do? And look what our Lord says. You don't understand. Not now. He has said things similar to this before, but he says, you don't understand now. You will later. You can't possibly appreciate or comprehend what I'm doing now, but you will later. And he's signaling that there's something greater that's being pictured here that his disciples can't comprehend. There's a deeper meaning uh, to his, his actions. We could paraphrase it in modern day and say, Peter, just don't. Just be quiet and let me do what I'm going to do. But Peter, undaunted, verse 8, you shall never wash my feet. Now, let's be honest. As we read that, it sounds humble. It sounds spiritually humble. It sounds like he's showing deference for who Jesus is. It sounds similar to what John the Baptist said. When Christ came to John the Baptist to be baptized, what does John the Baptist say? He says, I should be baptized by you, and you come to me? It, it could be. Uh, it, it sounds like Peter is saying something, I should wash your feet and you come to me. Never. It will never, never happen. But our Lord is clear. Is that Peter, you don't understand. He doesn't understand what Jesus is doing. And if he did, he probably would resist even more. He just doesn't understand what Jesus is doing. But also he doesn't understand himself. This is the same man who says in Matthew 26, I will never forsake you. I, I will never fall away from you. The other disciples may, but I will lay down my life with you. And it's striking that Peter does not object when he sees Christ washing the feet of the other disciples. Only when he comes to him. That's when Peter protests. And it kind of signals that there's something else going on here that this modesty that perhaps we want to read into it, giving the benefit of the doubt, that modesty kind of fades to reveal what's actually a sort of stubborn refusal. There's a disobedience here. There's, there's a fence that Peter is taking. As somebody has said, Peter is taking a stand when there's nothing to defend. That what's actually happening here seems to be pride. And Jesus responds, but I think we should take as a rebuke when he says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. He's saying, without this, what I'm doing right now and all that it, it represents, if you refuse this, then you have no part in what I'm doing. And what I'm offering, everything I'm about, you have no share in it. And you see what he's saying is that this moment is actually pointing to a greater moment. It's that deeper symbolism of Jesus' death. You see, as humbling as it is to have Jesus wash your feet, that's nothing compared to having Jesus purify you as a sinner as he dies upon the cross. To refuse this simple service is to refuse the greater service of Jesus. When Jesus will stoop even further on the cross and bow his head under the power of death. This is not about dirty feet. This is about polluted souls. And that's why Jesus does not say, if I do not wash your feet. That's not what he says. He says, if I do not wash you, he's not talking about his feet. We could take it this way. What Christ is saying is this, if you cannot accept my washing dirt from your feet, then how are you going to accept my washing the filth of sin from your soul? 
if you have difficulty with me merely taking the form of a servant, how are you going to handle it when I take the form of the suffering servant that Isaiah spoke of? If this gesture of love as your mere footman is offensive to you, then how much more when I show you the full extent of my love, when I become the ransom for your soul? If I cannot wash you with water, how in the world can I wash you with my blood? Christ is simply teaching Peter that if he cannot accept this, if he cannot receive this, then he has no claim on Jesus. And Peter confirms, just as Jesus said, that he does not understand. He says, then wash my hands and my head as well. But see, Jesus is not talking about his body. He's not talking about ceremonial washing or anything like that. He's talking about cleansing his soul that Jesus is going to to demonstrate in a living parable right here what he's about to do on the cross. And Peter desperately, desperately needs to be served. But not just served, he needs to be served by God in the flesh. And nothing less will do. And it's similar to what Jesus says to John the Baptist when he says, this is necessary, this is absolutely necessary and vital to fulfill all righteousness. Christ is saying something similar to Peter. This is absolutely necessary if you're going to have any part in what I'm doing and what I'm going to do for you. To refuse this service is to refuse that greater service of Jesus when Jesus will win redemption for lost and unclean sinners who need to be cleansed of their unrighteousness. And you see, the point that Christ is making here is is different from the, the previous point that he talked about, that you cannot be too proud to serve one another. But here the point that's being made is you cannot be too proud to be served. We don't want other people's help. Our children learn that right away. I, I grant you there's controversy about what are the first words out of a, an infant's mouth. Is it mommy or daddy? I think it's usually daddy. I think it's fair to say. But the first phrase, the first phrase an infant puts together is what? I can do it myself. I do it. Me do it. Right? Something like that. But it goes into older age when you're trying to help somebody. And the response you get is very discreet. I don't want to inconvenience anybody. But you have the sense there's something else behind that. It's hard to receive help. It can be legitimately hard to receive help. One of my interns that I had uh, in the OPC church in Wheaton, his father was dying from ALS during his internship. And he was, it got worse and worse. He was debilitated to the point where my intern's mother had to do everything for her husband. Everything. I can't imagine how hard that is to be served that way. It was difficult for him to be served that way. One time he was on the phone with the intern. He just broke down in tears. He said, Dad, what's wrong? And he said, I'm just afraid she's going to leave me. And he heard in the background his mom yelling, I will never leave you. It's beautiful to hear that. But how hard it is to be, to be served in that way. All of us, we don't like to be dependent upon other people any more than we like to be corrected or reminded or anything like that. It's just difficult. We struggle with this the self-sufficiency. Some of you perhaps have seen uh, the movie Shenandoah with Jimmy Stewart in it. And it was also a Broadway a musical. But there's a, there's a point in that, in that play where Charlie gives this prayer. He says this, Lord, we cleared this land. We plowed it, sowed it, and harvested it. We cooked 
the harvest. It, it wouldn't be here, and we wouldn't be eating it if we hadn't done it all ourselves. We work dog bone hard for every crumb and morsel, but we thank you just the same anyway, Lord, for this food we're about to eat. Amen. It's that same spirit. We can do it ourselves. But the truth is, many times we find it hard to be served because we're too proud. It's hard to receive help. It's hard to admit our need. Or perhaps we want uh, only certain others to serve us. So we want the, the right message. We want that, that message that, that flatters us. And many people want a message that, that won't wound their pride, that will simply flatter them, and won't threaten their self-sufficiency. And you see, that's the very offense of the gospel. And that's the problem with this form of pride. The gospel forces you to admit your need. The, for, the gospel forces you to have to look to God for help. And that's what makes Christianity so unique. Francis Schaeffer said Christianity is, is the easiest thing in the world because you can do nothing. Christianity is the hardest thing in the world because you can do nothing. It's hard for people to admit that. Think of the Sermon on the Mount, the way which it begins with the Beatitudes. They, they drive you inward. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, those who look within. And what do they see? They don't see riches. They, they don't see a wealth of, of moral virtue. What they see is what they, what they lack, and therefore they, they mourn when they look within. And so that's why they are driven out from themselves into hunger and thirst for righteousness, because they don't have that within them. And they have to admit that. Blessed are those people that understand that and see that. And understand that the gospel is a gift of grace. The gospel is about something that you cannot buy or achieve or earn or deserve. And that's more than some people could bear. And what Jesus is saying here is to have a share with Jesus. He's saying you have to take all of me or you get none of me. It's Christ who comes from heaven with terms of peace in order to reconcile us to God. It's an unbelievable message for sinners. But he comes with terms. And those terms are repentance and faith, which we sang about in Psalm 51. A terms in which I've broken hard to understand what I've done against God. I see my need and therefore I, I turn to Christ in faith. That somebody understands that I absolutely must be washed by Jesus, there's no other sacrifice, there's no other life or righteousness or obedience that can cleanse me of this filth that I feel within. But see, the cross offends that pride. And people that cannot face this idea that their sin is so bad. You see, the cross is not about what you and I are worth. The cross is about what it takes. What it takes to save us. That unless the Lamb of God washes us, and takes away our sin. We have no part with Christ. We cannot share in what he offers and what he gives and, and what he promises. If Christ has not washed us, then we've not received anything from him at all. It's either all of him or it's none of him. And so you see, these verses kind of confront us with our greatest need. And it's to be served. Or we could say to be washed by a Savior. But you see, the Savior that we need is a Savior that we have in Jesus Christ. And it's all because of sin. Because sin is guilt, it condemns us. And so we need Christ to come and to pay the penalty of that sin. Because uh, sin is bondage. 
it enslaves us, and we need Christ to come and do what he does to set us free and to deliver us from that sin. But because sin is also pollution, it defiles us, and we need Christ to wash us clean. And that's what we have in Christ. But you see, in the Christian life, you and I, we believe in justification by faith, but we have to be honest with ourselves. We do not always feel clean. We know our sin. Even if nobody else sees it, we're like, David, my sin is ever before me. I can feel this presence. I can feel the stain of my sin. I can smell its stench. I can sense the nearness of my pride and my selfishness and lust and envy and worldliness. And there's many times I feel, I feel dirty from these things. And then there's those waves of guilt and shame that pound at our hearts and wash up memories of old sins that seem like they happened just yesterday. And when we're among Christians and those that we respect, it's like we feel we should shout out, unclean, unclean. And that's why we look to Christ. And our passage tells us that the Lord of all became the servant of all. It shows us that he was the form of God, took the form of a servant. That this is the one who could boast of divine excellencies and all the, the privileges of heaven, and yet he walks this this path of humble obedience showing us in this passage what it is. It means renouncing what is his by right in order to purchase what he has promised to us by grace. That he would have to suffer under this terrible burden of our sin and bear its humiliation and its guilt and its shame and its curse and its filth as one who would be condemned. But by doing so, what has Christ done? What do we relish in this evening? That he's wiped away our sin. And it's important to appreciate he's wiped away not just sin's penalty, but also its power. We could put it this way. He's wiped away not just its power to condemn us, but its power to corrupt us. This is the brilliance of that line uh, from the hymn Rock of Ages, where it says, Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. The double cure. Save me from its guilt and power. And this is why we love this language of Christ cleansing us. It's not just a legal thing he's done. It's something that we understand experientially. That's what's so wonderful about Psalm 51. Again and again, he says, blot out my transgressions, wash me clean, cleanse me. It's what every Christian understands. But Christians need to appreciate, too, what Christ has done, that he has fully satisfied everything required so that God could declare us not just forgiven, but as righteous as holy and pure and clean and to stand upon these promises like 1 Corinthians 6 that yes, you used to do these things but but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God to remind us that these, these deep stains of sin cannot blemish what Christ has done for us and what the Spirit is doing in us that the grace of God cannot be undone that it will overpower all these things so that we understand what Isaiah says, that though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. That's what Christians stand upon, that promise of what we have in Christ, that God has united us to Jesus Christ at every point of his work, that we have died with Christ, we were buried with Christ, we've been crucified with Christ, we've been raised with Christ, and that's why we have a share in Jesus at every point of his work, that we have a share in every benefit that he has won, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's ours that we have a share in Jesus. 
in his righteousness, a share in his holiness, a share in his resurrection power, a share in his eternal reign, and a share in his love. It's this gospel that tells us greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. That's what love does. That's what love is. It gives. It sacrifices. It serves. It washes dirty feet. It washes dirty sinners. It's a love that knows no bounds. It's a love that would stoop so low to rescue sinners like you and like me. A love that is without equal. A love without end. We have a share in this love. If we humble ourselves and receive it. Let us pray.